again, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. Welcome to the show. My name is Jeffrey Kwame. I'm your host, and I'm the executive director of the Connecticut Certification Board. This episode comes to you thanks to the generosity of Cafe Real, a provider of, of, of sustainably grown coffee sourced directly from family farms in Medellin, Colombia, and roasted on site in Bristol, Connecticut. Without hesitation, I can say it's the best coffee I've ever had. My friends can attest to my fondness for all their products. I send it to my friends all over the country. Um, Cafe Real is not simply a coffee shop or a product. It really is a true coffee community. You can see their coffees and order yours today at CafeReal.co and use the code JeffQ10 to let them know that you heard about it here. Order today for yourself or the coffee aficionado in your life and experience coffee like no other. On behalf of the Board of Directors and staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this episode of Scope of Practice. If an entity does not learn to adapt, it risks extinction. Take the case of Blockbuster Video. This giant dominated the movie rental market through the 1990s with its brick-and-mortar stores, and in 2000 turned down the opportunity to purchase the new streaming service Netflix for $50 million. Netflix today is worth over $28 billion or 560 times the original asking price, and Blockbuster was removed from the New York Stock Exchange in 2010. Of course, there are many subtleties that were involved, but the picture is clear. Adapt or become obsolete. To that end, the SUD prevention, treatment, and recovery industry must also adapt to issues previously unforeseen and to the application of current and future research into practice, or we face dire consequences that are exponentially worse than simply being obsolete. Lives will be lost. It seems simple enough to grasp, but for an industry industry that works with individuals with a life-threatening disorder with ramifications across one's entire life, we have a history of being slow to incorporate new techniques and technology, with the most example being an ever-present anti-medication bias that still exists for many of our practitioners. However, thankfully, the tide is turning on this, and we recognize the life-saving ability of medications in support of one's recovery. But we still must keep an eye on the future and be prepared to respond to what is ahead rather than reacting to it at the last minute. So what does the workforce of the future need to be successful? That certainly is a loaded question that has no simple answer. But our guest today is here to talk about some of those potential requirements. We welcome Aaron Williams, senior consultant at the National Council of Mental Wellbeing in Washington, D.C., to the program. Aaron has more than 17 years of experience providing training and technical assistance in the field of behavioral health services with an emphasis on substance use treatment and prevention, workforce development, and the implementation of evidence-based practices in clinical settings. Mr. Williams has written and contributed numerous articles and reports on drugs of abuse, primary care, and substance abuse integration, expert mental health, and primary care integration, workforce development of behavioral health providers, and the implementation of medication-assisted treatment services. In recent years, Mr. Williams has managed several projects related to the uh, adoption of medication-assisted treatment services in health centers. These projects include Project ECHOS, style learning collaboratives in which federally funded community health centers from across the country participate in virtual learning community sessions focused on increasing health centers use of buprenorphine for the treatment of opioid dependence. Additionally, Mr. Williams has developed tools, resources, and provided subject matter expertise on substance abuse topics for diverse stakeholders, including federal grantees, rural health providers, federal program staff, and other community stakeholders. 
Mr. Williams holds a bachelor's degree in psychology from Morehouse College and a master's degree in psychology from the Catholic University of America. Please, let's welcome Aaron Williams to the show. Good to see you again, Aaron. Uh, good to see you again, Jeffrey. How are you today? I'm really well. Um, if you noticed, I stole some of your stuff from a presentation <laughs> for the <laughs> that I saw from the introduction because I thought it fit perfectly. Oh, that's perfectly fine. It, it's out there for public <laughs> consumption, so you know, go with it. Uh, you know, although it's certainly not a new phenomenon, we are seeing a significant increase in a number of individuals with co-occurring substance use and mental health disorders, mostly due to increases in mental health disorders overall. There was significant attention paid to this earlier in the century with the co-occurring state incentive grants in 2203, but the need to adapt continues. What are some of the skills and abilities the workforce will need to effectively treat individuals with co-occurring disorders as we move into the future? Well, you know, this is a, um, you know, sort of an interesting topic. I think, um, you know, as most people know, um, if it's, you know, certainly people in the field, um, you know, folks with substance use disorder, they tend to not show up with just sort of one thing going on, right? It's, you know, um, alcohol use disorder plus, or it is, um, you know, stimulant use disorder plus. Um, and very often, um, you know, substance use is um, happening as a way to manage, mask, or mitigate underlying uh, mental health disorders. Um, so this is something that's, that's you, know, you know, sort of ever present. And, you know, there's a lot of data um, now that really suggests that particularly um, some younger folks, opioid use disorder, um, you know, many of them are coming in with um, you know, co-occurring mood disorders. So, you know, one of the things I think when we think about this topic is um, that this is going to continue. Um, this is a part of the work. So, um, you know, there has to be some level of a willingness really to engage. Um, very often, um, you know, for better or for worse, you know, our, our field is can be a bit siloed, uh, particularly substance use disorder um, um, services. Uh, you know, you know, we've seen instances where you know, provider organizations, um, you know, you'll say, hey, they see a, uh, um, you know, a uh, mental health related medication in someone's chart or something like that. They say, oh, well, you have a mental health disorder, you know, go over there and, you know, get that sort of taken care of and then come back and talk to us. Um, and, you know, that certainly is just not a great way to think about the field, to think about providing um, services. You know, um, you know, you need to have counselors and clinicians with a skill set that really allows them to, you know, address, um, you know, these issues simultaneously and programs that really support that kind of work. Right. So, you know, understanding mental health medications, understanding, um, you know, what some of the common mental health you know, disorders are, mood disorders. Um, also understanding some of the risks that um, you know, may be at play um, when people have some of these uh, mood disorders. Uh, and certainly, I think, you know, as we talk about this, um, there's been increased awareness, particularly around, um, you know, uh, reducing harm. So thinking about suicide, you know, um, you know, screening tools and other things, implementing them in, um, you know, addiction treatment facilities. So thinking about how do you, you know, really expand a lot of the work that the COSI grants did, um, you know, years ago. I mean, they were great grants, but um, you know, in lots of ways, um, we need sort of much broader expansion of that that work, um, you know, back in the field. But you really just kind of 
you know, you know, ha- making sure that aid counselors are willing to engage and have those skills. Um, you know, there's nothing sort of, um, you know, most counselors have some level of, you know, clinical skills. They're trained in, you know, MI, you know, CBT, other things. And, and those things, you know, translate very well to addressing mental health disorders. So, um, you know, you have need programs that really back clinicians up and clinicians that are really willing to engage on these, on these concerns. It would seem that there's an, uh, uh, and in my experience, I've seen that there's an underlying greater stigma against individuals with mental health disorders as we fight very hard to reduce the stigma uh, against those with SUDs. I think we need to pay attention to our own kind of internalized stigma against mental health disorders. And it's just because many of us don't understand. Um, and I think exposure and education is a great way to, to kind of break through that stigma. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, certainly you see, you know, in, in, you know, throughout the media, you know, lots of incidents um, you know, related to people, not just with substance use disorders, but people with uh, mental health disorders. Um, and certainly we need to do a much better job of educating the general public about these things. Right. So you have, um, you know, the, um, you know, clients or patients who come in, you know, may, very often they don't have a good sense of, you know, you know what's going on with them, um, you know, what that means, you know, what's, what the services are. Your families and loved ones also have sort of preconceived notions about what these things mean. You know, and there's some programs out there, um, you know, mental health first aid being one of the big ones that seek to really help, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, sort of ordinary people understand more, particularly about mental illness. And we need more of that, um, you know, within school systems, within, you know, curriculum um, to really help people um, understand that, hey, um, you know, this is sort of a normal part of, of life in some ways that, that, that many people, you know, can and do, um, you know, will suffer from a mental illness at some point in their life. People, um, you know, can and do recover all the time, um, you know, and there are resources out there for people. Mm. You know, that it kind of leads me into the next question. It's a perfect segue because what we're seeing also is uh, a, a more notice or more attention paid to suicidality uh, amongst individuals with SUDs. Um, and really on a positive note, the field is increasing awareness and education among professionals and the paraprofessionals and lay people as well to help prevent and treat these at-risk individuals. Um, We still have a little ways to go, but we're getting better. What are some of the ways that the field is equipping itself to be better prepared? You mentioned um, mental health first aid, which is uh, obviously a great first line of defense for people. What are some of the others that you see? I think one of the things is um, you're beginning to see, uh, you know, particularly in training, um, of professionals, um, you know, an increased focus now in general on sort of this idea of harm reduction or reducing harm. Um, so really looking at, you know, all of the sort of broad risks that people may have, particularly who are using substances. Um, you're seeing a greater emphasis in you know, primary care and across the board of doing, um, you know, suicide screening. Um, which is one of the big things, really, you know, moving that out. I think there was some data that came out, um, you know, several years ago um, that talked about the idea that um, people who um, completed suicide, uh, you know, um, completed suicide, you know, had seen a primary care doctor within 30 days um, prior to um, their the completed attempt. And, and so, um, you know, think about, well, if that's the case, then how do we get more professionals um, the tools and resources to actually engage and really ask questions about this and you know, intervene much earlier 
um, you know, in, in the process. Um, you know, people who may be struggling and may be having suicidal ideations, um, you know, they want to talk about it. But these are really difficult things to, to say. You can't necessarily talk with everyone about it. People may not be equipped to really, you know, provide resources. Um, so you see a lot of that even in substance use treatment organizations, you know, making sure that you're adding, um, you know, su suicide screening tools to the work um, that you are, you know, um, you know, having people to assess, you know, signs and risk. Um, and it's also particularly as we think about, you know, what is on the minds of everyone, I think, across the country is the opioid um, epidemic. Um, a lot of the, um, you know, concern is about sort of overdoses. Um, you know, many of them, you know, are accidental. Um, a good portion of them may not be as well. So thinking about, you know, implementing these tools as a way to, again, mitigate harm and intervene further, uh, you know, upstream, if you will, um, to really prevent that. I think, you know, I have been trained in the past. One of my positions was uh, doing mobile crisis and then crisis in an emergency room. So I was trained to formally assess for suicidality. So I have a level of comfort because of my training, but it's easy for me to understand how difficult it is for an individual who hasn't had that exposure to ask about somebody's suicidality because there's a fear that that's going to drive them to it. And we know it's just the opposite. Yep. Um, people are willing to talk. Um, so getting through that, that fear, which is legitimate, is something that we need to do. And I think, you know, being a QPR trainer myself, um, uh, gatekeeper, that I, it, it, it's a way to get it out in the community. And I think that there are tools out there and uh, we just have to remove that fear. It's hard, um, yeah. but it you can know, be done. Yeah, you know, absolutely. I, I think, um, you know, um, it's an uncomfortable space for both, you know, uh, you know, client and, uh, you know, practitioner, right? particularly if you're not well trained in it. Um, you know, the other component about that, you know, of, of getting people more comfortable with this and getting, you know, more training into the field is, you know, the system itself has to, you know, create space, um, you know, for this to happen. Um, you see a lot of work now, um, by states, um, you know, across the country, looking at implementing the new 988 um, sort of crisis line, um, you know, work, um, and, and part of that work is going to be um, connecting folks who can help, you know, with folks who may be, um, you know, at risk for suicide. So, so thinking about how the system can again sort of employ more tools and more resources, um, you know, to help support clinicians. Who um, you know um, you know need to screen and, and and really intervene early the front lines of of, of that sort of crisis. So um, it, it's it's both clinicians and also the system sort of expanding to, to mm. you know, kind of moving on from that. It's we there's a couple a phrase that we hear a lot that I'm not sure if people are really understanding, and I think I want to talk about it for a second. It's the treatment gap. The treatment gap for both substance use and mental health disorders, along with co-occurring disorders, continues to remain a problem. Can you define or explain what the treatment gap consists of? Kind of define it. So, so when we talk, this is a really great question. And when we talk about, you know, the, the treatment gap, um, you know, there is, I'm not sure how much, you know, folks know, but every year, um, there's survey data that really tells us about sort of the state of, of the need for um, you know, addiction treatment services in the country. It's, uh, you know, we call it the National Survey of Drug Use and Health. Um, and as a part of that survey, 
um, what they do is measure this thing, quote unquote, called the treatment gap. Essentially, they um, you know, ask people questions that meet um, the criteria for a substance use disorder. Um, and then um, they also have information about how many people in a given year receive services. Um, so we know that you know, typically um, any given year, particularly for substance use disorders, um, that maybe about 10% of the people who um, need a particular service um, actually receive that service in a given year. Um, so we have, you know, you know, roughly, if you think about, um, you know, some of the data, I think more, most recently, you know, around 20 million people that sort of are in need of, you know, services for substance use disorder on some level, um, and maybe about 10% of that will receive any services. And so it's a significant, you know, sort of burden, sort of problem, but yet we have this, this gap of people, you know, receiving services. Um, and that happens for a number of reasons. Um, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, some of that is driven by, you know, people's ability to pay, so cost, you know, and it may not um, feel like they can pay for services. Um, you know, some of it is, you know, a lack of awareness of where services are within communities. Um, you know, other, you know, sort of reasons for that are, you know, um, people want a particular service that's not available in their community. Um, so there are a number of reasons why this happens. And also there's a group of people who, particularly for substance use disorders, um, you know, have some awareness that they have a problem, but certainly um, are not ready to, to discontinue use or ready to go to a more formal service, you know, at that point. And, and so part of, I guess, you know, the, the broader question here is, like, how do we begin to kind of close that gap? Um, certainly, you know, as I think we'll talk about later, there's, you know, some workforce issues um, there. We need to expand capacity significantly. Uh, we need to think about different sort of, you know, expanded funding mechanisms. Uh, we also need to think about where we deploy services, right? So, um, there are a um, myriad of other social service agencies and places where people who have substance use disorders might, you know, appear, but we don't provide many services in those other places. So, you know, how do we begin, um, you know, expanding our capacity in ways that will um, ultimately meet that demand? Um, and that's a big question for the field, and it's it's been something that we've, you know, quite frankly struggled with uh, for quite some time. And you see similar patterns you know, specifically around mental health disorders as well. And there, there have been some large-scale efforts to, to improve things. When, when we first started with ESPERT to get uh, doctor's offices involved in screening and getting people into treatment, because we everyone knows if I can't get an appointment with a specialist, if I call my primary care, they'll get me an appointment. So that it kind of eases the burden. Moving forward, at conferences across the country where we both have presented, I have seen and heard you present address some really scary statistics about our workforce in terms of scope. What are some of the statistics that relate specifically to the supply of and demand for SUD professionals? So, you know, um, um, so, so I can give you some of the data, but then I, I you know, talk about this a little bit because I think there's, you know, some, some headwinds that, that sort of, you know, make this data you know, much more relevant. So if you think about just in terms of this conversation about closing the, um, the gap in terms of services, you know, addiction counselors, there's some data, you know, from HRSA, the Health Resources and Services Administration of the government, you know, that says by 2030, we expect, um, you know, addiction treatment counselors to increase the number of them to increase by about 6%. 
um, by about 2030. Um, but, you know, on the other side of that, you know, we expect, you know, the, um, you know, the uh, need for, um, you know, addiction counsel, addiction service to increase by anywhere from 21 to 38 percent. So we have a real gap in terms of the number of um, you know, service providers that, um, you know, we're going to need versus the, the overall need um, across the um, you know, country going forward. We also see generally about 25% of the um, treatment workforce, um, you know, quits in a given year. So we have a fairly high turnover as well. Um, so there are a number of headwinds, particularly around sort of staffing, um, you know, that are projected out. You know, um, and I have to, when I talk about this now, I have to talk about it in the context of sort of what's happened in the last two years, um, because I think that's a big, you know, part of this. Um, the treatment field has always had sort of, you know, some turnover, just the nature of the job, um, you know, in some ways and, and other things, of pay and salary. But in the last two years, you see across the country, um, you know, people sort of leaving their jobs, people sort of moving on to other um, you know, um, you know, jobs. I think I saw some data um, the other day where we had, uh, I think, roughly six million people or so uh, quit their job within like a given month. Um, you know, you know, ten percent of the workforce, something like something like that. Um, and, and this is happening, you know, largely sort of related to the pandemic and some of the social unrest. The people are really, you know, taking the opportunity to leave, looking for better opportunities. Um, you know, some of it's burnout you know, from whatever they're doing. And, and, you know, the field's not immune from those, you know, larger societal headwinds too. So you see, you know, lots of issues with staffing now, even more than we've seen previously. So um, it's a a big concern um, across the board. I'm seeing people um, that have been in the field for, you know, a little bit, just saying this is not for me and going into other uh, career opportunities. And it's, it's dangerous for us to lose, especially young people that come in the field, um, mm-hmm. because they're so important to our future uh, of where we're going to go. Absolutely. Um, you know, we look at it, it's clear that the old way of doing things, the way we've done things, you know, almost traditionally, um, have not really been that effective. You know, some have noted that we haven't had a significant positive increase in outcomes since 1976. So 45 years, we haven't really seen better outcomes. You know, we've made some efforts as an industry to change that paradigm that we've been accustomed to, and resources exist to guide us really as we do so. What are the characteristics of the newer paradigm that we really want to encourage uh, professionals to to get involved in? You know, it's interesting. So I think, um, you know, um, you know, certainly I think that's true. Part of you know, that the outcomes have sort of been somewhat stagnant. Um, I think there are a number of reasons for that, but I mean, I would, you know, point the audience towards, there's one resource in, in 2016, um, the Surgeon General um, issued the first Surgeon General's report on, um, you know, addiction. Um, it's a pretty comprehensive um, document. If you haven't seen it, I think it's still on the Surgeon General's website. You know, the Surgeon General then is now the Surgeon General yeah. again. So, um, you know, there's a little bit of continuity there. Um, but, uh, you know, and what they, what they did there was they basically distilled all of the evidence in the research kind of up to that point um, related to substance use and um, treatment and substance use services. And they laid out, um, I think, very nicely a continuum services all the way from primary prevention services all the way through recovery supports. Um, so I think 
in one way, you know, to, to answer part of the question, you know, it lays out this idea that there are lots of tools in the tool shed to intervene um, at different points in time in someone's substance use trajectory um, that we need to be using. Um, it, it's one thing to point to kind of standard, um, you know, counseling practices, group therapy, you know, um, you know, 12 step facilitation, all of those things. Um, but there's no doubt that we need to be employing more tools. And there are lots of evidence-based tools all the way up, you know, all the way up and down the line. So as I think of it about as, as really a more rigorous focus on how do we get people, you know, the right service at the right time in the right dose. And I agree. I think that's exactly what we're looking at. And it goes to meeting people where they're at, which is something that we're still working on. We're still trying to figure out how to do that, because in many cases it is the 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 client, the patient has to meet the provider where they're at. But we're starting to change that. You know, for years, the continuum of care was that we didn't really see a lot of improvement in was a one size fits all model, right? You go to, a, you have a detox day, you go to a 28 day program, and then to an IOP or an outpatient, and then 12 step involvement. You know, I don't want to discount this and say that it was ineffective because it helped a, a significant amount of people, but we certainly needed to reach more people. Mm-hmm. Um, what does the newer, more recovery friendly continuum look like? So I think I think it, it, it's a couple of things, right? So if you think about um, the idea, and it started somewhat in sort of the broader healthcare field, but looking at um, you know much more uh, you know um, person-centered care, you know, really thinking about you know what are the supports that a particular person needs, as opposed to that sort of you know cookie-cutter approach, um, and really thinking through that. And there's a lot of you know, elements of that, particularly when we think about substance use. Um, and, you know, because what we're trying to do there is really facilitate, you know, what we call sort of long-term recovery, right? Um, and that requires more than just, you know, the treatment episode. Um, it requires addressing, you know, some of these other supports, um, social determinants, um, you know, other sorts of, of things there. And, you know, we need to be thinking about that new paradigm as being able to address some of those broader supports. Um, there's no doubt that new paradigm supports the use of medications to address addiction treatment. Um, you know, even though we've had significant increase in the use of medications, um, they're still woefully underutilized given the effectiveness. Um, and they can be used, you know, in combination with those recovery supports. Um, so the new paradigm, you know, looks at those things. Um, a newer paradigm also looks at, again, deploying some of these resources in, in other spaces and places. Um, certainly healthcare with the emergence of expert screening and um, brief intervention and referral to treatment. Um, but looking at also other places, sort of schools, um, other social service organizations, other places where you can identify this much, much earlier. Um, you know, one of the, the sort of stats that sort of strikes me um, about, you know, this work is that we know that, uh, you know, the younger people begin using substances and begin having problems, the uh, more likely they are to, um, you know, have you know, multiple treatment episodes later in life, the longer their trajectory in terms of being able to move into, uh, you know, long-term recovery is. So we need to be deploying resources in a variety of different places, you know, much, much further uh, upstream. You know, and, and 
when we talk about this, when we look at strengths and, and kind of build on individual strengths, one of the more interesting aspects of strength-based paradigm is the focus of recovery capital. Um, can you talk to us about what recovery capital is and why is it important? Yeah, so, so yeah, so certainly. Um, you know, when we talk about this idea of recovery capital, what we're really talking about is the uh, some total of, of supports strengths and sort of supports that people have, um, you know, within themselves or within sort of a given community to help facilitate, you know, again, that idea of long-term recovery, right? So if we think about, you know, recovery, a life in the community, you know, citizenship, you know, really being engaged in those things. Well, you know, you need, um, you know, um, a broad set of supports, you know, um, you know, abstinence can be a component of that. But you also need to think about things like like housing. You want to know, um, you know, does a person have these sort of social connections? Um, you know, are they, um, you know, do they have sort of a level of educational attainment that allows them to really function, you know, within the broader community? Um, do they need sort of vocational training, um, you know, legal assistance? You know, other things that we know, you know, clients and patients who have substance use disorders are dealing with. Um, and, and we know from the research that even beyond treatment, those things are critical um, to figuring out whether a person sort of, you know, you know maintains themselves 5, 10, 15 years um, from now without, you know, a lot of um, significant intervention from treatment programs. Earlier in the year, I, I interviewed a couple of researchers who uh, were working on financial capabilities and financial uh, awareness. Uh, as recovery capital. And it was really fascinating in what they found because it was what they didn't expect. Um, you know, they looked at people with bank accounts and they, they kind of recognized the underground economy uh, of, of how people lived. And that was a strength that we wouldn't think of, of that. And it, it was legal, um, but it was done through prepaid cards and, and things like that. And it really uh, showed that these were great survival skills. Um, having interests that you can continue with, uh, with support. There's an individual uh, in the country who does, who, who does sober tailgate parties. And I consider that to be recovery capital because if somebody enjoys football, going to games, and that's their thing, if they can continue to do those things safely, it, it's fantastic. Um, so I think it, recovery capital is anything and everything um, under the sun if it's uh, used correctly. I can't talk about workforce development without mentioning my favorite tools of all, SAMHSA's TAP21, the Addiction Counselor Competencies, and 21A, the Supervisory Competencies, because these specifically point out the 123 competencies um, that outline the qualifications of a competent professional. What are some other resources that are useful in educating the workforce of the future? Well, I think there, there are a number of sort of resources that are out there now. So interestingly enough, over the last few years, I think, um, you know, SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, has been doing, you know, quite a good job of, um, you know, putting together some resources and other things. Um, you know, um, some years ago, um, they had formulated a, a Center for Integrated Healthcare to really think about how to integrate um, you know, uh, behavioral health services and primary care services. And they put out sort of a list of core competencies um, for behavioral health um, providers working in, you know, primary care settings. So, so that's one that I would certainly would recommend that's still out there. Um, you know, they have a, num a number of other resources. Um, 
just um, that really do a lot of sort of you know education. One is the provider clinical support system. It's called PCSS. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a wonderful website that really deals with all things uh, medication. It's really designed to educate the broader sort of field about you know how to use medications, what what role they play within the context of substance use. And they cover a broad variety of issues. It's a great way to, I think, you know, listen and sort of engage in sort of, you know, um, educational activities. Um, Certainly the, uh, you know, certification boards, you know, ICNRC, you know, NADAC, um, all have their own, um, you know, uh, know, educational components. Um, And also I'd be, you know, remiss if I didn't, um, you know, uh, talk about one of the longest running sorts of programs, the Addiction Technology Transfer Centers, um, have been around for quite some time across the country. And they provide, you know, wonderful educational, um, you know, materials, um, you know, for the broad field, um, pretty much at every level. So so those would be some things off the top of my head that I would think of. I'm a big fan of the ATTC network. I've, I've. For this podcast, I've interviewed the co-director nationally. Um, I've talked to a couple of folks from the PTTCs regionally, prevention. Um, I've done work nationally on clinical supervision with them. So it's great that I've been able to network with other professionals from around the country. And we talk about training opportunities and, and, and doing that. And I certainly encourage professionals to learn about other roles than their own. When I learned about everything that happens in prevention, I was blown away because I wasn't aware of it. I wasn't from that world. Um, and that way we can support each other better and learn about things that you don't like, I think is important. Um, and I think we're seeing that for people who are, are, you know, aren't too comfortable with harm reduction, learn more about it. You don't have to agree with it, but it's nice to have some awareness of it because it's going to come up. It's, it's, it's going to be something that we have to deal with. And our personal opinions have to be set aside in order to help those that we that we work with. Absolutely. Um, before we finish up, anything that you'd like to share with our listeners? You know, I just I think um, you and you sort of talked about in, in, in sort of your opening kind of you know, I've done a few of presentations where I've talked about that sort of future. I just think, you know, as we think about sort of what, you know, is happening, you know, now and then going forward is that we just have to, as a field, I think, you know, be flexible, you know, really engage and, and use the things that we know are evidence-based and work. Um, but certainly we have to understand that, you know, as a part of the healthcare field, you know, things change. Um, have they, if, you know, if the last two years haven't taught us, you know, have taught us anything is that, you know, you know, the unpredicted can happen. Um, and, you know, we really have to seek out ways in which we can be, you know, um, flexible, creative and adaptive going forward um, to really meet the needs of, you know, the community. Um, you know, substance use is a community problem. Um, certainly, you know, when individuals come in, it's a sign of sort of things you know, happening in the community. So we need to think about what are those broad community supports? Because that's a part of this conversation too. So how do we integrate those individual sorts of resources with broader community supports to really address this? You know, that's a nice way to end, um, to look at it from a community-based perspective, because it really does affect an entire, not just the person, not just the family, but an entire community and, and 
we have to look at it when we work with individuals that they are are part of a community and helping them is helping that community. Um, that's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. I'd like to thank Aaron Williams for joining us today, as well as appreciation to the National Council on Men and Wellbeing for allowing him the time to appear. We certainly want to thank our sponsor, uh, Cafe Real. Um, send an email to Eduardo Garces, um, buy your coffee there. Trust me, it's a great Christmas gift. Um, CafeReal.co. Um, and we also welcome any organization to join our podcast as a sponsor. Uh, you can reach me at info at ctcertboard.org for more information. We here at the CCB appreciate everyone who's listening. Don't forget to follow us on Podbean, iTunes, Amazon, or your favorite podcast application. We'll catch you next time, everybody. 